Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Professor Michael Rechtenwald with us to talk about woke and the Great Reset. Michael is a former Marxist, but he is now a champion of liberty and opposes all forms of totalitarian and political authoritarianism, including socialism, communism, social justice, fascism, political correctness, and woke ideology. He's the author of Beyond Woke, Springtime for Snowflakes, and The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, which is largely going to be the topic of today's conversation. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I read in your intro there that you were a former Marxist, and now you've not only rejected Marxism, but you're full-blown libertarian. Could you give us the Cliff Notes version of that journey for you? Yeah, I mean, it all came to a head at New York University. And at that time, I was a far leftist Marxist, left communist, as it were. And yeah, I mean, just the whole way the left turned on me when I denounced a lot of the social justice practices and hysteria going on, that really opened my eyes. And I began to see that underneath the surface was this rather utopian ideology. We really Mm -hmm. were dealing with totalitarianism. And it became very apparent to me from the outset when I was really lambasted and denounced and so forth by colleagues at NYU and not only faculty, but also administrators. Mm. And the administration and the faculty came down on me like a ton of bricks. And then most of the left, if not all of it, turned against me. I had a lot of leftist friends and had a reputation in Marxist circles for writing on Marxist topics in various publications and so on and so forth. And First, it was a political transformation, and I recognized that I was kind of a libertarian, a cultural or civil libertarian, and some Mm -hmm. might say uncivil libertarian. (laughs) And then I began to delve into the economics and began reading in the Austrian school, largely. And this really brought about a total shift such that now I'm both a civil libertarian and an economic libertarian. Mm. And I can see the complete connection between property rights and liberty. Mm. And without property, there is no liberty. So that became very manifest to me. And when I came across the writings of Mises and later Rothbard and even Hans-Hermann Hoppe, I really had a total gestalt shift. Mm. And, you know, then I don't do anything half-heartedly. So I became a staunch supporter of liberty and the free market and its connection to individual rights, in fact. So all of this became extremely important to me. And it's been my mission ever since to oppose all of those forms of totalitarianism and also to champion its antipode at liberty. Mm -hmm. 
you know, somebody who's pretty familiar with Marx, of course, what is the connection between somebody who would be very comfortable with Marxian ideology and the woke movement? It seems that those things kind of go hand in hand in a lot of ways. And I think it's important for us to talk about, like, why is that the reality? Yeah, that's because woke ideology or wokeism is a social justice movement. And the social justice movement deems it basically works off of the same ethos as Marxism. And that is there's this oppressor class or in Marxist theory, there's the ruling class or the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And under wokeism, it's just another identity category. Hmm. It is the oppressed and the subaltern or the subordinated and the oppressor or the privileged. They really share this underlying ethos. And I call it underdogism. It's this ethos and a belief in your rights and your way of life have come at the expense of somebody else. And likewise, they have to be eradicated. This is really the bottom line of what wokeness is about. It's a zero-sum thinking. It believes that anyone's acquisition of wealth comes at the expense of somebody else, that it depends on the poverty of others, and that it is completely intimately connected to the exploitation or oppression or privilege mm -hmm. of another person. So this is why I have been working to untangle all this zero-sum thinking and to connect wokeism to a totalitarian ideology, which it is, to yeah. its totalitarian character. And I think over the past year and a half or so that I've been sort of studying this movement, it's becoming more apparent as time goes on that this is a very totalitarian ideology. A few years back, I was discussing Christian theology and social justice movement with somebody. And we were talking economics. This is a sort of online friend of mine who is a bit older than me. He's the kind of person that I like to bounce off my serious ideas and be like, how can you believe this in particular? And so we, we had this conversation and we talked about exploitation a little bit. And he was saying that I should open my eyes to the fact that there might be more exploitation and oppression than... I might be willing to believe, even if not everything can be explained that way. And so mm -hmm. the question I'd have here for you is, as somebody who's greatly familiar with Marx, I mean, is he literally 100% wrong? Like, Or are there oppressor-oppressed classes? Or can we identify things that are happening in the world that can be explained through, hey, you are poor because you're being exploited? Or even if those are not the rule, but the exception, do those things still happen? Do they exist? And where might we find them? Okay, well, to start with Marxism, the premise is that of exploitation under Marxist thinking is that it hinges entirely on the labor theory of value and the belief that the worker is exploited at the point of production because he is producing the value and the bourgeoisie capitalist is appropriating this partially appropriating value that's only produced by labor. That is a false premise to begin with. So once you knock down the labor theory of value, the whole theory of exploitation falls with it like a house of cards. And this is why you'll see all kinds of strenuous defenses of the labor theory of value, despite, I think, it's being utterly obliterated many, many, many decades ago. 
the mm. earliest Austrian thought totally annihilates this idea. And then recently, more recently, in Rothbard, in his book on uh, socialism and capitalism, and likewise, Hans-Hermann Hoppe, in his book on the theory of socialism and capitalism, it demolishes this idea. Mm-hmm. But there is exploitation and oppression in the world, but it's not coming from the capitalist class. It's coming from the state. So the state is the real oppressor. Mm-hmm. So there is an oppressive class, and this is a class that produces nothing but takes from laborers and capitalists, everybody, a portion of their earnings with the use of force. That is exploitation. And where the capitalist class cooperates with the state and vice versa in collusion with the state, this exploitation is even enhanced through the monopoly schemes that are established by virtue of collusion between the state and capitalists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is the real problem, and this is one of the things to really explicate and to unravel in order for people on the left to understand what we're talking about, because they think that the free market itself is the source of exploitation, but this couldn't be further from the truth. The free market is the source of liberty, and also Hmm. it is the avenue through which everybody can vend their own wares on the marketplace, whether they be intellectual talents or other talents, and to exchange that value with other people in consensual relationships, contracts of sorts. So the state is really the big exploiter. It is the one that takes wealth by force or the threat of force, which amounts to the same thing. And likewise, there is exploitation. And the cronyism is one of the problems that has to be attacked and shown to be the case as a kind of super exploiter class. Yeah. Capitalists in conjunction with the state do tremendous exploitation by virtue of essentially setting up monopolies which determine prices and labor prices and so on and so forth. So that's where it's coming from. Okay, so for me hearing all that, and of course for most of our audience, we're kind of like, well, of course, that makes complete sense. I don't understand why somebody who is a Marxist, whether explicitly like, hey, yeah, I'm a Marxist, or just somebody who sort of thinks of social justice and all those terms, Why don't they see the state as an oppressor institution? Like what gets the state off the hook in their minds? Because they accept this first premise that capitalism exploits workers intrinsically, that it is exploitative at the very roots of that relationship between the proletarian and the capitalist. They think that the state is the only arbiter Mm. that can adjudicate and that can effectively intervene and lessen that exploitation through measures like social welfare and other measures to ameliorate that condition and to overcome it, at least partially. This is why socialists call for the nationalization of industries and banking and everything else, why they call for state intervention, why they're so big on regulations and all kinds of other measures to intervene in the relationship between the laborer and the capitalist. But this all rests on this faulty notion 
that exploitation happens in the relationship between somebody who's employed and somebody who's employing them. Mm. And this is what they have to be disabused of. So really, there's nothing more important than taking down the premise of the labor theory of value and the notion of exploitation at the point of production. This is essential for undermining the leftist argument against capitalism and for the state. Yeah. So they're statists because they believe the state is a benevolent arbiter and adjudicator of the wrongs that are supposedly being done to the laborer. If we were on video, I think this would be a time to do a face palm, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. like I, don't, I don't understand the, the blinding. I don't know. It just seems very obvious to someone like you and me, I suppose. You, yeah. know, you were saying that one of the reasons that really kind of tipped you away from Marxism was the way that the woke left kind of came at you or whatever. Right. Is there a theory of social justice that you would ascribe to without the woke ideology infused? Because it seemed to me, I mean, I was aware of the term social justice starting around 20 years ago. And as a Christian going to seminary, it was something that I was like, well, okay, I think I could go along with this if there's no sort of state involved. And I became a libertarian at the same time I was thinking, oh, well, social justice, that's not a dirty word. But then, you know, it just became more, now to use the word woke a little bit more, it became more woke and it just didn't sit right with me. So anyway, is there anything from you that you would, so if we got rid of the woke, social justice might be okay if it's voluntary or something like that? Well, the premise of social justice is that justice comes vis-a-vis adjudication of grievances by groups. And its connection to Christian morality, I can talk about too, Mm -hmm. because I've written about that and Beyond Woke. The problem with that idea is that justice is not a group matter. It is an individual matter. So the only justice is justice based on one's own behavior and the correct results to that behavior. So I mean, the only answer to it in the Christian morality is actually charity, individual charity, which is voluntary and not directed by the state. And individual charity, if you feel beholden to give to poor people and to particular minority groups, then certainly you have every right to do so. But to obligate somebody on the basis of the social justice creed is actually theft. So that is immoral at base. So I don't think that we need any concept of social justice to have justice. And we don't need it for charity either. We don't need social justice to basically intervene in any kinds of past historical wrongs or things like that. I don't Mm. believe in it. Now, where something like reparations would be concerned, I think that if I stole your grandmother's wedding ring and I had it in my possession, you'd have every right to have it back. Or if my ancestors stole your grandmother's wedding ring, it got passed down to me, but my possession is based on theft, then I should return that property. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So likewise, I think that the people that really, if we could locate them, which is the biggest problem, who benefited from slavery, that is the actual people who benefited from slavery and have been passed had an inheritance is based on slavery, 
then those people should pay reparations. But this doesn't need to be arbitrated by the state. And it certainly shouldn't be a blanket reparations levied on the whole population who had nothing to do with it and gained nothing by it. Yeah, right. Well, let's talk a little bit about woke capitalism. Yeah. There is... (laughs) We recently did an episode on ESG. Yeah. And we are slowly making our way through a lot of these concepts regarding critical race theory, critical theory, the phrase long march through the institutions, I think somewhat applies here. I don't know if you want to start back that far and then sort of maybe end with what is stakeholder capitalism? Wow, that's a long march indeed. Well, uh, we can do a, we can do the brief part and then another conversation yeah. for what the long march is, because I think that's actually, this will set up our conversation about the Great Reset, I think, pretty nicely. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the long march through the institutions is based on a Gramscian, Antonio Gramscian notion that socialism would not be achieved. He believed this is Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist who was imprisoned under the fascists in Italy, under Mussolini. He believed that, you know, the way to revolution was not going to be this direct takeover. The problem was that fascists had proven that people's loyalty, workers' loyalties were not necessarily to the working class internationally or something like that, but rather they had a great deal of loyalty to their own nation state. So the long march through the institutions was coined by this socialist student activist, actually, Rudy Dutschke. And he described this strategy for establishing the conditions for revolution along Gramsci and Antonio Gramsci, along Gramsci and lines. And that would be to penetrate the institutions of society, the educational institutions, particularly the dominant ideological state apparatuses, as the uh, French Marxist theorist Louis Althusser referred to them, and to infiltrate then to subvert the capitalist ideology that was putatively being disseminated through these institutions, and to replace it with the socialist ideology and then disseminate it from there, and thereby you would gain the adherence of the population to socialism and then eventually overthrow the capitalist system. And what decade was this? Well, Gromsky wrote after the First World War. Okay. So we're talking roughly in the 20s and 30s, and when he was in prison, he wrote his prison notebooks. That's where this is found. And then in the 60s, this was picked up by the student radicals, Rudy Dusky being the guy that coined the phrase, the long march through the institutions. And from there, there has been indeed a long march through the institutions. And in fact, they have successfully indoctrinated a great deal of the public vis-a-vis this infiltration and subversion of the ideological state apparatuses. But I, I argue that these state apparatuses were never capitalist as such. Right, they were right. always statist in the first place, and likewise very amenable to socialist ideas. So it's kind of a red herring in a way that you had to subvert these institutions, infiltrate and then subvert these institutions in order to bring about socialism because... You already had these institutions have been status for quite a while. 
they are supported by the state by taxes, including not only direct grants to these institutions, but also student loans and other means of floating these institutions. If it weren't for Mm -hmm. the student loan system, I don't think we'd have the college system that we do. We wouldn't have this whole socialist bulwark and these academic institutions. So, you know, in a way, the Long March was really a formal takeover by socialism. And likewise, this is really what has resulted in wokeness now. There's a few things that mediate this relationship. Identity politics became very big after it was decided that the Western working class was not going to be the major agent of political revolutionary change. And so the new left, as it was called, it's still called, began to focus on other groups like women, feminists, environmentalists, new age thinkers, and various other identity categories. And of course, blacks and other minorities and began to try to cobble together this kind of new coalition, which really resulted actually in political terms in the rainbow coalition of Jesse Mm -hmm. Jackson, for example. So this new focus in wokeness on identity comes vis-a-vis this new left's adhesion to these new identity groups after the working class became such a disappointment, especially in the United States. They were seen as being co-opted by capitalism. Really what happened is their standards of living were going up and the promised immiseration of the working class, as Marx had promised, never took place. And so the theory of socialism hinged on this idea that the working class would be continually immiserated to the point of basically just utter survival. They would, the capitalist system would only reproduce them at the point of production and they would have no other wealth beyond what was necessary to reproduce their presence at the place of work every day. But this didn't happen. In fact, we had emerging of the consumer, in consumer capitalism, we had emerging of the working class with their, with the employing class so that they got closer and closer together culturally and economically such that you'd have, you know, employees driving the same car as the boss, so to speak. It's also why you probably hear Marxists say, they'll use the phrase, well, capitalism delivers the goods, but, and then they go into all the other things because they have to admit that at least our standards of living are actually somewhat dignifying. That's exactly right. That was what Herbert Marcuse, who was the Frankfurt School theorist, he argued in his book, One Dimensional Man, that although capitalism was creating wealth and higher standards of living. This, he said, was totalitarian in itself because it didn't allow any alternative way. And it actually drew everybody into the system. And therefore, there was no outside of the system now. There was no standpoint from which to criticize it. So this is very, I find it laughable Mm. that, in fact, when the workers actually were gaining wealth, This was a tragedy for Marxists, not the other way around. This was actually a serious crisis for Marxist theory, for Marxist ideas and ideology and ideals. So they had to find another group. They had to find different groups to be the new protagonists in the struggle against capitalism. So they looked at minorities, women, environmentalism, environmentalists, and other things. And 
they began to condemn the system on other terms. So with this movement, you know, we've on this podcast in particular, we've kind of covered in some to some degree that whole movement up through like the 90s and so forth. And I know that I want to talk a little bit about the Great Reset here. It seems as though those things were taking place mostly within academia. The idea would be to, you know, take over institutions slowly with this ideology. But it didn't seem to be somewhat coordinated in the way that we would talk about something like the Great Reset. So I want to sort of transition to the conversation a little bit so that I can keep the title that we're going to talk about the Great Reset here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I also want people to know that your book is out there and it's incredibly detailed in spelling out some of these things. But I want to give a chance for you to talk a little bit about this. It does seem that the Great Reset, at least as you spell out in your book, is a little bit more coordinated than sort of the trends that were happening 50, 40, 30 years ago. Yeah. And so... Let's talk about this. What is the Great Reset? Like, how do you define it? What's actually happening in your mind there? So, yeah, I'll just leave yeah. that to you. Yeah, I mean, the Great Reset is a, I do argue in the book, and I say this in the intro, it is a continuation of these trends that start early in the 20th century, if not a little earlier, even the late 19th century, of this kind of, well, there's a lot of threads here, but. Let me just say what the Great Reset is. It's a project to change the economic system of the world and to make it a global system of the same type everywhere. And the means of undertaking this is by establishing what they're calling stakeholder capitalism. And the idea there is that, you know, the people that should benefit from capitalist corporations and organizations should be all these various stakeholders. and They're using several pretenses to bring this about. One was COVID. The other is the major one that's always been in the background and has been the most important is climate change. So that's where the ESG comes in. ESG is kind of the mechanism for establishing stakeholder capitalism. It is a means of consolidating capital and putting it in the right hands, the hands of those people that abide by the environmental, social, and governance indexing. And likewise, I've said, and I'll just say it now because we may not get to this, it's a cartel, it's a shared monopoly scheme. It's a cartel scheme. Mm -hmm. It's a way of driving capital to particular producers and away from others, starving them of capital. And it doesn't behoove these so-called stakeholders outside of the system. It behooves the stakeholders that are part of this woke cartel. And it eliminates these other producers and it leaves a small class under control of an oligarchy who are determining who can get capital and who can't. And likewise, it is a way of driving out of business many producers, consolidating capital in fewer and fewer hands and monopolizing industry, driving certain industries out of business And it results, as I see it, in a kind of two-tiered system where you have the oligarchs and the state on top and everyone else living under what I call actually existing socialism. And that is to say, socialism as it really is, which is always under a monopoly scheme. People are living under a monopoly scheme when they live under socialism. Usually under states, socialism. It's the state that monopolizes all production, supposedly. There's always, though, there's always these favored producers that are exempted. 
And so this Great Reset establishes a stakeholder capitalism where you have a class of exempted, accepted producers and in collusion with the state on top and the kind of socialism for everybody else in the sense that there is no upward mobility, there is no property, there are no rights that flow from property rights, etc. So I think that's the Great Reset in a nutshell. And it is coordinated. It's incredibly coordinated through, you know, the World Economic Forum is like the quarterback that is executing the plays mm-hmm. of this Great Reset. They are putting it into practice. They're coordinating the players. But the players are pretty high up. We're talking major asset managers, of course, like BlackRock, State Street, the Vanguard Group, and others who are controlling upwards of $22 trillion worth of capital and directing it to the preferred stakeholders and away from the non-woke or non-abiding producers. So it is a very pernicious, underhanded means of establishing this kind of a monopoly production. And it's using the rhetoric of socialism to bring it about. So I have a question here. To some extent, I think maybe people could see that the earlier part of this conversation was about wokeness and Marxism. And now we're talking about global finance and cabals of smoke-filled rooms and or well, they're <laughs> probably not smoke-filled anymore because of, you know, ESG, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but these people coordinating, you know, you have this quote in the book on page 29 that the Great Reset is but a coordinated propaganda campaign shrouded under a cloak of inevitability. And I think the inevitability part is the sort of, well, we're expecting everybody to think that, well, we just need to go along with all these social justice, all this wokeness stuff. And so what ends up happening in my mind is you've got these Marxist, leftist, woke people over here on the one side, on the left. And then you have this experience or this phenomenon that you just described with the Great Reset, which I'm inclined to agree with you that what you're describing is happening because this isn't like you dug up some files. These are all publicly available. Right. And I would see in some ways these are in conflict. Why would it be that the people who are in favor of woke are also really, really happy that people like Klaus Schwab are trying to coordinate companies to be more woke when it seems like it's the kind of thing a Marxist would be against? Yeah, that's a great question. So it really goes back to the fact that Marxism is a monopoly scheme in the first place. It ends up as monopoly. (laughs) Pardon? I said that's a fair point. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So the left has always been duped by what I call subversive elites who use Marxist rhetoric and ideology to bring about a particular kind of oligarchical state control over society. And this has been the fact since the Soviet Union and China and other socialist projects that always end up this way. And this is really what it comes down to every time is the monopoly over production. In this case, they're just sharing the monopoly with a slightly broader palette of producers, but it's still a statist monopoly scheme. And so they're kind of circumventing governmental legislation and other means to bring about this kind of uh, oligarchical monopolization Mm -hmm. of the economy. And the left 
has always been very duped by monopolies. In fact, the interesting thing is... <laughs> That's an go, understatement, man. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, if you go back all the way back to like, I've discussed him in several books, King Camp Gillette, who was the founder of the Gillette Razor Blade Company. He was a capitalist who believed in socialism and he thought the way to bring it about was by creating a singular world monopoly. <laughs> and the way it would become socialist is that everyone would eventually own equal shares in this one world corporate monopoly, which would also be coterminous with or identical with the state. And there's a lot of interesting points to make about how socialists have always favored large over small business. They prefer large over small businesses because large businesses give them more leverage, so they think, for labor activism and for regulating industry, for benefits, and so on. So there was a Jacobin article, and this is a leftist socialist. Yeah, yeah. Light magazine, if you will. I used to hate it as a left, even as a Marxist. I thought it was a pablum for the left, you know. But uh, they wrote an article, I'd probably written 10 of them, where they talked down small business and extol the virtues of large corporations. So there's always been this mm. strange irony. Well, one of the things is they think once they consolidate capital as much as possible, then overthrowing it is less difficult. It's always been the median middle business owner entrepreneur that's been the real enemy of socialism all the way through. They hate the little ones, the little owners, the petite bourgeoisie. These are the people they appropriate property from. They always appropriate property from these people first. Then they think they can control the large corporations with the state's coordination. Mm -hmm. That's why they go along with the Great Reset. Okay, I see. Hi, this is Gregory Vouse. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. Well, before we run out of time, I and I wanted to ask you this question, and I was trying to think whether I should ask you at the beginning, because anybody who knows anything about the Great Reset is going to bring up the common objection, which is, well, what is this simply a conspiracy theory? And mm -hmm. I'll ask this, I'm going to ask this in two parts. One, how is it that somebody like Klaus Schwab can write a book called The Great Reset, and yet still there are people saying that someone like you are just a conspiracy theorist saying that this is just, you're just connecting all the wrong dots and there's no coordinated effort and so forth. So yeah. that's the first part of the question. Yeah. And the second is this, and this is possibly, I don't know how tough this is to address in a few minutes, but if I were to pick a template for a... <laughs> one of the most common tropes of anti-Semitism, this would fit that template. And I mean, right down to so, even some of the names. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've encountered that objection in particular, because I know that they've actually, I think it was the World Economic Forum, or I forget where you quoted it, was saying that people need to be on the lookout for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So right. anyway, those are two parts to a question I'll let you address. 
Yeah, that's a big one. So first of all, I adjudicate this question in the book, probably the only book to actually address it head on on this topic of the Great Reset. That it is. happened to be the first chapter I read, which was, it was near the end of the book. Yes. It's <laughs> I the last right chapter in the book. Yeah, I jumped right to it because I'm like, I want to know what your thoughts are on this. And I really, I really appreciated the chapter entirely. Yeah, that chapter was either going to be chapter one or the last chapter. And I opted eventually after thinking it over so many times, I said, let's put it at the end because I, I want people to get into the arguments first. And before they have to trudge through this chapter, which is fairly dense, I think. I mean, it's dense in the sense that it's dealing with philosophical treatments of the question of conspiracy theory. First of all, there's nothing wrong with a conspiracy theory for being a conspiracy theory. So that has to be first adjudicated. And that's what I treat in that chapter. The reasons for that are given in that chapter, I think. I don't know if you got through it and thought you agreed or not, but let's put it this way. Merely dubbing something a conspiracy theory is in no way dispensing with the argument. It's merely a epithet that's been used since Karl Popper actually mm -hmm. introduced the term the conspiracy theory of society and his open society and its enemies, and then picked up by the CIA as a way to discredit all counter arguments about the Kennedy assassination. But is the discussion of the Great Reset a conspiracy theory? Yes, it is, because it is actually positing a kind of conspiracy, but it's not exactly a conspiracy because it's an open, avowed plan. So some people may see more connections between various elements than I do, actually, and may go further in their conspiratorial thinking than I do. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I think the only way to adjudicate any theory is by testing it against the evidence. Mm -hmm. So, Were there things that you had to rule out uh, from the book that you were like, eh, there's no connection here? Or... Well, I wasn't sure there was no connection. I just didn't have proof yeah. for things like people will say, for example, the COVID was uh, produced on purpose to reduce the population and put it under control of these oligarchs and the state. It did do that, but I didn't. I draw the line where I say that's the effect, but I don't know. I don't know that that was the intention, and mm -hmm. I don't know whether the COVID virus was actually produced and released on purpose to do that. But I do go so far as to say that, in fact, it did have that effect. It did have that effect, whether that was intended or really opportunistically exploited is another question that I don't adjudicate. But I will say this, though. There's another thing I would like to say in connection with conspiracy theory, and that is this. I believe that these people actually help to promote conspiratorial thinking with reference to the Great Reset in order to discredit and deflect criticism from it. So, for example, at the last annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, in his address to the General Assembly there, said, something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, it's quoted in the book, we not only have the current virus to deal with, but whatever other virus we may have on the agenda, he said. <laughs> and then he said... Did he know the mic was hot? <laughs> yeah, his mic was hot and he knew it. He was speaking to the general audience. And then he said later, the future is not just happening. The future is made by us, by you and me here in this room. So. <laughs> if that's not 
Well, let's just say I think that they actually throw these kind of comments out there on purpose to actually instigate people to come up with conspiracy theories about this whole project in order to Mm -hmm. discredit all critics of the project. Well, it is a very leftist tactic to do that. And even on a smaller scale, the left is saying that critical race theory or the trans movement is a boogeyman of the right. Yeah, And so they'll say this and they'll say, oh, well, this isn't really happening or that's just like critical race theory being taught to second graders is simply a conspiracy theory or whatever. And it's like they throw this term around just to make sure that people are like just not heard. So that's a totally believable explanation in my mind that there is the whole deflection aspect. Have you dealt with or have you come across my question about the uh, anti-Semitism? Oh, yeah. The Anti-Defamation League dismisses the whole inquiry into the Great Reset on those terms, that all these Great Reset theorists are merely playing on an ancient anti-Semitic trope and so forth. And my answer to that is, in the book, I I tie down and I name names, and they're not all Jewish names. Mm -hmm. There are many different people involved. As a matter of fact, These globalist organizations, they recruit very decidedly and deliberately from so-called minority populations in order to justify their and rationalize and put a good paper wrapping over their project to make it look like it's coming from, from the ground up. They recruit from all over the world. They recruit from otherwise so-called minority and subaltern groups and exotic others and all that in order, I think, to uh, paper over the centralized, nefarious nature of what they're up to. So what's the way forward here? Are you optimistic? Are you, I mean, the right wants to just outright ban things by using the state. And if you're an anti-statist like you've described, that may not be the solution you recommend. But how do you recommend the libertarians fight against this? Well, I have a nine-point plan at the end of the book. I call it the grand refusal. Basically, refusing is the only solution. And that's refusing various technological apparatuses that are being rolled out, like the CBDCs and the digital identity, which is intimately connected to that, to refuse investments in the ESG industry, to circumvent all the centralized uh, apparatuses of control that they're using in order to funnel all the money into this woke cartel or woke cartels, whatever you want to call it. It's a big configuration, a big conglomerate of producers and money managers. So the only thing I can argue for is that we have to practice the free market ourselves. We have to avoid their trammels. We must try to circumvent and refuse their mechanisms for control and refuse the CBDC, refuse digital identity, refuse the internet of bodies, refuse all of these elements. That's the only rational, non-statist mechanisms I could come up with. And I'm confident that a contingent of a remnant will survive all of this. I'm not confident that they won't not succeed to indoctrinate and induct a fair majority into this system. But I believe that there'll be resistors, real resistors, who will create and maintain a remnant class 
a remnant of people who were not going to be inducted and indoctrinated into this overall global hegemony. Where would you prefer people to buy this book? Well, I prefer them to buy it directly from me on my website, michaelrechtenwald.com. That way you get a signed copy and you get it straight from me and you don't go through Amazon. But if you insist on going through Amazon, you can go on Amazon and get it. Either one helps me. The prior helps me more. I think it's a better way. It's also consistent with my philosophy of decentralization and avoiding the digital giants, the big digital giants that are the cutting edge of this Great Reset project. So you should just do the Jeremy Razor approach to just don't give your money to woke companies. Give it directly to me instead. <laughs> well, hey, I'm a capitalist. I'm not, I have no... Yeah, right. uh, I make no apologies for that. As, so yes, as you shouldn't. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. that's good. <laughs> I, you know, it's my labor and I'm trying to trade it on marketplaces. That's what I believe in and that's what I'm doing. Excellent. Well, Michael, I appreciate you taking the time today to chat with us about this. I have about... 50% of my intended questions that we didn't get to. So I'm sure I'll have you on again and we can keep talking and we'll look forward to that maybe. That sounds good to me. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.